Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. I'm Tony, and today is episode 77 of the podcast. I get to sit down with pastor, speaker, and author Patrick Schwenk. Patrick wrote a new book in a boat in the middle of the lake, and it's all about his journey with incurable cancer. He talks about how chaos is the greatest teacher and how to find hope in the midst of suffering and still manage to trust God. Patrick has such a rich and deep faith that you're going to love this episode, no doubt about it. Uh, Do me a favor, subscribe, leave a comment wherever you can, and the best thing that you can do to help get the word out about what God is doing on this platform is to leave a review. We're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year. In order to make that happen, we will need your help. So leave a rating review specifically on iTunes. It would mean so much to me. I read every single one of them. I I appreciate all the help that you do uh, to make this podcast possible. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Schwenk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to bring uh, pastor, author, and speaker Patrick Schwenk with us. Patrick, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for being here. Hey, Tony. Thanks so much. I'm excited to talk with you today. Uh, You have an incredible story. And as I kind of dove into it a little bit, I was blown away by um, all the things that God has done um, kind of in and through your story. But I was also, I found something and I, I want you to tell me if I'm right here. Did you meet your wife on a prank call? (laughs) <laughs> I did. The, the rumor is true. Yeah, we were both students at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And, you know, back in the day, you know, having a desktop computer with a microphone on it was like cutting edge. And oh, so sure. that was a big deal. And so, um, you know, we would get, you know, my roommate and I, uh, we would get a bunch of the guys on our floor into my room and we'd turn on the speaker phone that was connected to my my computer and I, I have a, I've been told I have a bit of a radio voice. And so we would prank phone oh, well, calls. First of all, you do. And so does your wife. Your guys' podcast is incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I kind of use that voice uh, for, for some entertainment for us when we were in college. And so I would call, um, you know, we would call different students on campus and pretend to be a radio uh, you know, station in town and and ask, you know, students to to meet us at the corner of, you know, two streets and win $500 or whatever. And that's how we, that's how I met uh, my wife. And so my, my roommate actually had English class with her and said, Hey, there's this girl in my class named Ruth who will totally fall for this. And so we called her and and the story goes that she didn't fall for the prank, but in time she would fall for me, but that's, that's how we met. And so um, if any of your listeners are are still single and looking for you know don't don't count that out that that's a, a viable option. <laughs> <laughs> the the problem is now is that technology's made it so much harder to do some of the fun uh that some of the, the fun truth. like you can't who can you prank call anymore without exactly I mean that was before caller ID you know it's you, you got to be pretty pretty smart nowadays to get around some of those those uh those obstacles. <laughs> So, uh, so take me through the love story. Cause I always appreciate a good love story. You, you pranked your wife, she showed up and you just didn't let her go. Or how, how does that how, yeah, what's the so transition we, look like? Uh, right. So we, we met on that prank phone call. It wasn't too long after that, that, um, we went out on a, on a double date with another couple and then it was right around Valentine's day. So I wrote her this real sappy, you know, Valentine's day card, you know, top 10 reasons why she should be my Valentine. And so that was then our, our first date was right around Valentine's Day and uh, started started dating not long after that. And the rest is history. So we ended up getting married 
um, about a year and a half later, I think it was. And so met uh, there at Moody and got uh, married while we were still in Chicago, while I was still a student. And now we just celebrated 22 years of marriage. We've got four kids. Uh, our oldest son is in college, which is hard to believe. Wow! And so that that's the uh, the cliff notes on our our marriage and family. So twenty two years of marriage. Um, wh- what what has God taught you about um, marriage over the last twenty two years? I mean, I mean, like when you're when you're sitting down with a young couple, and your guys' story is full of twists and turns, and we'll, we'll get into a lot of that. But uh, I'm always curious, like, w- what's the big leading edge piece of advice yeah for someone to get a to get a marriage that really makes it yeah that's no, a great question i mean there's i think one thing that i always say at a wedding ceremony i've had the privilege as a pastor of officiating a lot of those those ceremonies and one of the things that i always tell couples as we're standing at the altar is that it's one thing to walk down the aisle um, but it's a whole nother thing to walk through life together mm. and and there are lots of couples obviously who who have the ability um, to walk down the aisle like that's the easy part of marriage all of your family and your friends are there the air conditioning is on in the church and you know the flowers but it's a whole nother thing to walk out those doors and to go on walking through life yeah. Uh, through miscarriages, through you know marital conflict, through you know uh, raising kids, through cancer diagnosis, whatever it is, like that's a whole nother challenge, and so that that I think is is something that I talk often about in premarital counseling and certain at, at ceremonies that um, it's one thing to walk down the aisle, it's a whole nother thing uh, to walk through life together, and and by God's grace, we've been doing that for twenty two years, and and man, love is costly. Um, and, and, you know, you, as you walk through life together, you really begin to understand what, what true love is like. And, um, and so that would be one thing that I would probably say. I love that sentence. Love is costly. Could, could you explore that a little bit more for me? Because I think that that's a, um, that's a concept that a lot of people, uh, I think, kind of misinterpret because we want love to be beneficiary. Like I want, right. Hey, I want people to love me because I want love, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's kind of the opposite of what you're saying there though. Yeah. It's probably a really biblical and good way. Yeah. I mean, you just think about, I mean, you know, the apostle Paul's words in, in Ephesians five and, and what it, what it looks like in a marriage context for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And, you know, you think about the cross and in the cross is is bloody it's gory it's it's um it's uh, it's a challenge to uh, to suffer and to give your life for somebody else and so I, I think if that's our picture of love if that's our model if that's our example of love you just realize how weak our love really is at times and, and so i think as we you know think about marriage and family like like our example has always got to be jesus it's always we've got to look to the cross and that's the greatest demonstration of love that, that we know. And, and that was a costly love for Jesus to lay down his life for us. And so I think about that is that translates into marriage that, that you know, of course, love is so much more than those emotions and those feelings. I mean, it is this loyalty. It's this commitment. It's this willing to suffer for the good of somebody else. Um, and again, that's what God did for us in Christ. And that's what he calls us to is as husbands, as wives to do that for one another in the context of marriage and family. No, that's that's beautifully and, and very well spoken. Um, when you guys got married, did she know that you were called to be a pastor? Was that was that always the plan for you? Did you did you were like what, what, I mean, obviously Moody is is known for producing 
you know, theologians and pastors, but yeah. how did that develop for you guys? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a, was a Baptist pastor, church planner. And so by the time I got to Moody, I honestly didn't want anything to do with the church. I was at a, not in a great place spiritually. And so I was going to Moody because, you know, I don't know why. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I went and, and I met Ruth my second semester and, and really at the time, you know, the, the plan, uh, you know, through Moody was for me to graduate. I was going to go back and work for her dad. Uh, her dad was a very successful business owner and um, did home inspections, had his own home inspection business here in Southeast Michigan. And so the plan was for me to go back and work for him. And long story short, I mean, through that process of, of just going through Moody, coming out of Moody, beginning to work for her dad, I discovered that, that I was being called into ministry. And while I felt like I could do anything, I, I felt like I couldn't do anything but ministry. My calling at ministry was just so, so clear and so profound. And it just seemed like God had been chasing me for a lot of years. And I finally, about six months after we graduated Moody, I finally gave into that calling. We had started attending a church just across the state line from where we live now down in Temperance, Michigan, um, you know, Toledo, Ohio area. And it was there that we started attending, just visiting a high school friend of Ruth's. And little did I know that they had been without a youth pastor. They had been searching for somebody for probably about nine months. And so one day the, the senior pastor called me and said, hey, would you be interested in applying for the job? And so that was really the first time that I was in a full-time pastoral uh, ministry role. And I had to have that hard conversation with Ruth's dad. And he was so gracious and so encouraging about my calling into ministry. And so we served in our first years of ministry there at, at First Baptist Church in Temperance, Michigan, uh, almost 20 years ago. But I, I share that because when we were at Moody, you know, I didn't really have any idea where I was going to end up uh, mm -hmm. in, in pastoral ministry. And Ruth had no idea. She was not raised in a Christian home. And did not become a Christian until she was in high school. Oh wow! So I had this ministry context um, just because of my my family, but she did not. And yet God knew what He was doing. I mean, I could not have asked for a better spouse in ministry. And so Ruth has been just an incredible partner in ministry. God has given her so many different gifts and abilities, and wired her with a different personality. And so it just I, as I look back, I just see God's goodness and His grace and His provision even in our marriage, just him providing me a wife and for us coming together when we did and calling us into ministry. I mean, it has just been such a joy to serve in ministry with her um, long before we knew that we were going to end up in the, in the local church serving in that way. I love that. Um, I, I love the fact that she didn't, you guys didn't really know what you were getting into yet. You were obedient in that process. One of the, one of the questions I love to ask people is how you hear God's voice. Mm. And so I, I want to ask it for, in two ways for you. One is how do you personally do it? And then how do you and Ruth do it as a couple? Because I think that there's a lot of people who are listening, who are married, and they're trying to decide what the next steps for their family are, Yeah. right? And, and that's not that's not an individual choice. That's a that's a family decision. Yeah. How, do, how do you and Ruth go about um, practically discerning God's will for your family? Yeah. So I, I think you know, one of the, the first things that I would say for us personally, and I would encourage anybody is I think, you know, of course, God speaks most clearly through his word. And so I think mm -hmm. for us, Ruth and I have always, that's been a discipline, a practice for us is just, it's one of the first things we, we do. I mean, we, we did it this morning, we got up early and we were, you know, in the word and we were doing our devotions and, 
in listening to God in, in that way. And so I think that that is the most clear and obvious and, and safest way that we hear God's voice is just the, the different ways that he speaks to us through his word. And, and I, I think that there have been those moments in our life in the past where, where God does speak um, in that still small voice. And, and there are those uh, times where you're praying through a decision and you just you hear God speak in that way. Um, I think you look at the scriptures and you see that there are times where God speaks to us through our circumstances and, and God closes certain doors and opens certain doors. But I think for Ruth and I, I think in the context of a marriage, you know, one of the things that we have always tried to do is to really be unified in, in those decisions as it relates to our future. And so there have been, uh, you know, multiple times in the past where we've been praying about, you know, leaving a church or starting a new ministry. And you know, we've been an online ministry for 10 years now. We've written a number of books. And so I think that as and we you guys write them together, right? We do. Yeah. And so I think as we, we are doing that or making decisions about those types of things, I think it's been really important for us to, to just say, you know, if God is going to speak to me, he's going to speak to us yeah. and, and really having a, a sense of unity in what it is that we feel like God is calling us to. And so as we look at, at his word, as we're listening to his voice in prayer, as we're looking at our circumstances, we're also really paying attention to, to just the reality of, of God. You know, he's joined us together and whatever it is that he's calling us into, we believe that he's calling us together into that. And so we really want to have have unity of mind and heart in that. And so just being careful that what it is that that I'm hearing, what, whatever it is that she's hearing, that we're really hearing that together. If, if you guys are in discord on something, uh, do you try to pray it out of her? I mean, you can be honest here because <laughs> it feels, that feels like something I would do. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Well, she's usually right. So <laughs> man, why? Well, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah, You're yeah, absolutely let's, let's right. Back to that. My wife is almost always right about that yep. stuff. Um, so, yeah. so you guys have been doing ministry together for a long time. And, and one of the things that I, I noticed in your story is, um, there, there've been some really tough moments, you know, some, some really tough moments. Uh, there, there were a number uh, of miscarriages early on in your marriage. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, and kind of what it was like for you as a, as a husband and a dad and a pastor to kind of, um, experience that and walk through that suffering with your wife. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would just say right away, I think I was oblivious to early on to how significant that really is for, for a woman. Mm -hmm. And so I remember very vividly uh, the first time that Ruth had a miscarriage, you know, she had uh, five miscarriages and, you know, we have, we have four uh, living children, um, but we, we had five miscarriages and I remember very vividly that first miscarriage, you know, being in, in the, uh, the emergency room, we were in Fort Wayne at the time. And I remember very vividly being in there with her and really not fully comprehending how significant that loss was for her. And I, I don't know why that is, I, I don't, but, but that was such a turning point for me. It gave me such a new appreciation for what she was going through, what that loss really meant, what those other losses would be like. But really then as a pastor, just having a greater um, you know, understanding or empathy for other women from within the church who would, who would miscarriage. And so that was, I think, very, very eye-opening for me just to be able to, to understand or begin to understand what that kind of loss, you know, really, really meant for her and to be a husband who was trying to love her and encourage her and not rush her in that. Um, you know, she was grieving that in a very different way than, than I was. 
And in many ways, she was grieving that much deeper than I was. And so not to rush her in that, not to try to fix that, but to let her let her go through that and to be able to be an encouragement and to love her and support her in that. I think it was something I, I had to learn. I, I didn't do it very well early on. <laughs> I, I don't think many of us do, actually. I, I'm um, fairly convinced that um, for guys especially, pr- pregnancy is one of those things that's not often real until the baby's out. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's a completely different kind of um, muscle that we have to flex in order to be empathetic with our wife in, in pregnancy or in the loss of pregnancy. Uh, if if someone's listening today and they're maybe they're becoming a little resentful about the emotional place where their spouse is, or you know they don't understand what's going on, and and you know COVID makes everything more challenging, and you know as they are bumping heads with their spouse, h- how do we get a stronger empathy muscle? Yeah, boy, that's a that's a, a great question. I mean, I think that that's. One of the things for us, I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, you know, um, going through the cancer diagnosis that we've been through, that I've been through, that has, my own suffering has has caused me to be more empathetic with other people. There are just things now that I look back on, I go, boy, I was just so oblivious to to what other people were going through. And there were times where, you know, uh, you know, other people had been diagnosed with cancer, going through something hard. And it's like, oh man, if I could go back and and be with them again, I would do it so differently. And so I think suffering has a way of just softening our heart. Um, and time has a way of softening our heart. But I, I think for that person that that may be in that place that we were just describing, I think, you know, one of the best ways we we can really flex that that, you know, that muscle is to really prayerfully ask God to do that for us. I think that's an act of God's grace. I think that's something the Holy Spirit does in us. You know, we can't manufacture that. We we can't sort of try hard enough to produce that fruit in us. And so I think it really starts with just going, Lord, I need you. Like, that's not my heart right now. And I, I want that, um, but but that's not um, that's not the fruit of my heart. And, and so Holy Spirit, would you just come and cultivate that, that kind of heart in me? And so th- that's the first place that I would encourage uh, anyone to start, uh, just to, to really seek the Lord on that and ask him to, to begin cultivating that kind of heart. That's, that's very well stated. I, I love the the part of of grace and being dependent on the Holy Spirit. I, I do I do probably think it's a daily posture for most yeah for for most of us that that it's a it's a part of our our morning prayer routine or a part of our as we read scripture and and of course you know we we see we see God's empathetic nature in scripture so often. Um, now you guys have been through a, a lot of of suffering and. Uh, one of the things that I have appreciated as I've uh, kind of dove into a, a lot of your ministry is that that suffering, the way you guys have have repositioned it almost as an act of worship. Mm. Um, can you tell me about the the process of um, how you keep suffering in the right place in your life versus becoming just a, a victim to suffering? Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the sneakiest temptations in suffering is to look at um, how bad we have it. Um, I think, mm. you know, um, self-pity is uh, one of those sneaky temptations. And I think anybody going through something difficult or, or through something hard, you know, we can easily fall into that place and to begin looking at, you know, why me and and why did this happen now? And look at everybody else's life. Nobody has it as bad as me, that, that kind of thing. 
And so I think it's so important for us to to really come back to that perspective of, okay, I, I would not have chosen this path. I would have not mm-hmm. have chosen these circumstances. Um, but Jesus, you loved me in your suffering. And so how do I love you in mine? And so if the message of the good news, if the message of the gospel, the message of the cross is that God suffered for us, then how do we offer our life back to him in our suffering? How do we love him back? How do we love others in our own suffering? And I think just having that perspective can be really, really helpful. I, you know, one of my friends and, and a guy that has been a mentor over the years, he's a stage four throat cancer survivor. And, um, you know, one of the things that he has encouraged me on over the years is that the, there really is this, this sacred trust that, that God invites us into this journey and, and he's trusting us to walk this journey well. And so I think for Ruth and I, just looking at that going, boy, we would not have chosen a cancer diagnosis at 43. Um, and yet this is the journey that Jesus has us on. And mm. so how do we use this in a redemptive way? How do we turn this on its head and, and use this to point other people back to Jesus? How do we love other people? Um, how do we point other people towards the hope that we have in Christ crucified and resurrected? And so I think just really looking at our suffering in that way has been a helpful way for us not to get sort of um, self-absorbed in our own suffering, but, but to be able to turn that and say, okay, God, this is, this is for you. And, um, and so how do we use this in a way that honors you and glorifies you and points other people to you? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? As, as I was reading your story, um, you're 43 years old when you get this um, cancer diagnosis, and it's a diagnosis that most people only get when they're over the age of 70. Am I, am I understanding? Yeah. So you're, you're abnormally young yep. in this process. You've already been through uh, a lot with, with ministry and the miscarriages and, and just, you know, life is hard sometimes, but how, how do you, um, how do you take all that in and process it when you find out that you've got this life-changing cancer diagnosis? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, when I found out, we, we found out on January 17th, 2018, and I, you know, I'm over 40. So like, I've got all sorts of body aches and, you know, I sleep and injure my neck, you know, those kinds of Amen. <laughs> that'll, that'll pre- that, I just turned 40 like last week. So, okay, well, <laughs> and I'm already like, oh man, I got to stretch more. <laughs> I got to drink more water. Totally. I was doing great till I hit 40. So just uh, word of encouragement. Me feel you. better, man. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so I was kind of accustomed to like just being fatigued all the time and, and, you know, feeling those body aches, but, you know, probably for at least, I want to say five, six months, like I knew something was wrong with my body and I I couldn't put a finger on it, but I just knew this was different. This was different than being over 40. And so, you know, long story short, you know, I, I had injured my left hip twice in a week and, and that pain became so severe that when I was preaching on Sunday mornings, I had to sit down, I couldn't lift my leg you know, on, on my own. And so in December of that year, I went into the doctor, they did an x-ray and then they did an MRI and noticed that there was a lesion, a, you know, a small tumor basically in kind of deep in my hip socket in my pelvic bone area. And so that I was recommended or referred to a, a tumor specialist at the university of Michigan. And it was there that they began to take another look at that do lab work. And that's when I got that call on January 17th that uh, what they had discovered was this, um, you know, pretty rare type of blood cancer for somebody my age. Like you said, it, it typically affects people that are older. Uh, even within that, it typically affects, you know, women more so than men. So I'm, I'm neither one of those. And so uh, <laughs> I, I'm a, a, a guy who was 43 at the time. And so, 
you do in that moment, I, I think anybody that hears the cancer word, your, your world just stops and you feel like somebody has just punched you in the stomach and um, you, you think a, a thousand one things at once and yet nothing at all. I mean, you just feel disoriented, you feel numb, you feel afraid. And, and so I think we felt all of those things in that moment. We had just picked up our oldest son, Tyler. Uh, he's involved in a homeschool co-op here in Ann Arbor. And we had just picked up he and a friend of his, and we were driving back to the house when I got that call. And so I was in the front seat, I was in the passenger seat, and Ruth was driving that particular day. And so here I have my oldest son in the back and his friend, and I'm scribbling on the only scrap of piece of paper that I can find, the word cancer, and this word that I couldn't spell. And so um, it turned our world upside down. And so I think initially when you hear that, it, it, it does, it, it just, it stops you, it confuses you. Uh, we were immediately, um, you know, scared and terrified. And so I think one of the best pieces of advice I got early on, though, you, you asked the question about how do you process that? Um, as I began to call friends and family members that day, my sister said to me, she said, you know, all eyes are upon you. And that didn't sound like or feel like encouragement at the time, but that was one of the best things that somebody could have said to me. And what she meant by that is uh, she was essentially saying, listen, for 20 years, you have preached. Um, you have led and you have talked about these things and now people will be watching you suffer. And so that was really critical for me early on as we began to process what our world was going to look like, what treatment was going to look like. Um, I think early on, God gave me that word just as a reminder that, that as we walk through this, we're not walking through it by ourselves, mm. but we're walking through it with our kids. We're walking through it with our church. We're walking through it with, with a community of people that we've had the privilege of pastoring over the last 20 years. And so all eyes are on you, that they're going to be watching us, they're going to be listening to us. And so we want to process this well, we want to suffer well, and we want to honor God, and we, we want to be an example to those that, that either have suffered or are suffering or will suffer um, you know, down the road. And so that was really important for us early on as we began to process what this new world of ours was going to look like. That's... Uh... That's very well stated, and and I think rings so true as a as a part of your witness. I, I guess one of the things that I heard you say is you want to process and suffer well. Um, what does suffering well look like? What is I mean? What what is it like? What is it? Is there a handbook? Because I, yeah. I think I could use it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. So I don't suffer well. I don't think, uh, or I'm I'm not even sure I have a, a box for that. What's uh, yeah. help me under, Help me see that a little. Uh, no, that's that's a great question, and I'll be the first one to admit that that you know we are not. In fact, we we mentioned that in the first chapter of the book. We're not experts in suffering, and right. so you know there are people who have read our book or will read our book. There's people that will be listening to your podcast that likely have suffered a lot worse than we have, and so we uh, are in no way experts in suffering. But I think to suffer well really looks like to to continue having faith and being faithful to Jesus mm -hmm. in the midst of suffering. It doesn't mean that you always have a smile on your face. It doesn't mean you always like your circumstances. Um, I mean, there have been a lot of days, a lot of weeks, a lot of months where we've wrestled with God, we've cried, we've lacked faith. Um, you know, I was sharing with somebody the other day that, that I think if there's a, a picture that comes to mind, it's that that willingness to just keep putting one foot in front of the other, um, one step after another, after another, after another, to just keep focusing on Jesus and trusting your life to Him with the questions, with the tears. But to continue just looking to him and walking after him, I think that that's what it looks like 
to suffer well, to, to continue being obedient, to continue honoring him and serving him and loving him and seeking him. And so I think to not suffer well, that's almost an easier question to answer. <laughs> you know, you know, you think about not suffering well, we kind of touched on it, but, you know, I think just getting so many people, you know, we can go through difficult times and, and we've had friends of ours who've walked away from their faith because mm-hmm. God wasn't behaving in a way that they thought he should. Um, and so they've shipwrecked their faith. They, they've walked away from the church. They've walked away from Jesus. I and mean, that's ultimately what it looks like to not suffer well. I think you, you see people who they grow resentful. Uh, they get mad. They, they, get, they, they turn on one another. Uh, their, their trials um, split them in their marriage or their family. Um, and so I think those are just some of the ways that, that we can not suffer well and, and to become sort of uh, self-absorbed with our own, our own suffering and our own trials and allow that to to pull us away or isolate ourselves from either Jesus or other people. So, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask personally uh, is how do you how do you manage pastoring dealing with uh, cancer? Because that listen, pastoring is kind of hard anytime. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard when you're healthy, right? <laughs> right. It's su- yeah, right. It's hard when you're healthy, and it's it. I can't even imagine what it's like. Um, to try to, to pastor. And, and for those of you who may not pastor, uh, it's a lot like being a, the CEO of a nonprofit that has a different set of rules than most nonprofits. And you're trying to walk with people wherever they're at. And, and a lot of times it requires, you know, putting down your own stuff so that you can help people carry theirs, which is, it's a tremendous privilege. I mean, no way. I'm super thankful that that God's given us the opportunity to do that, given me the opportunity to do that. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, but there are moments in my life where I've had this, uh, baggage that I'm carrying that makes it hard to help somebody else carry their baggage. I I would think that cancer has to feel like the largest bag you've ever carried. Yeah, for, for sure. You know, I think that, like you said, I mean, what a, what a privilege it is to be called into ministry and what a joy it is to to have had the opportunity over the last 20 years to, to pastor in different churches and different cities and to be, you know, part of people's lives, to, to be able to speak into their life and to love them and to serve them. And, you know, we had just moved up to Ann Arbor in 2000, end of 2015, beginning of 2016 to plant a new church. Hmm. And, um, you know, so as you know, planting a church is, is incredibly challenging. I mean, 90, they say 85 to 90% of church plants fail. Uh, they don't make it off the ground. And so church planning and pastoring, and those things are incredibly challenging, you know, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so we had just launched, we'd just gone public. And I think it was maybe eight, eight, nine months after our first public service when I was diagnosed. And so it was incredibly hard. I mean, those first five months of, of my diagnosis, I was going through what's called frontline treatment. And so I was mm-hmm. doing weekly, you know, chemotherapy uh, pills, weekly injections, and in that treatment was designed to really kick the cancer back as, as far back as they could. And then in July of 2018, I went into the U of M for my very first stem cell transplant. And so you essentially spend 14 days in the hospital. They, they hit you with a high dose of chemotherapy. Uh, they've already taken your good stem cells out, but they hit you with a high dose of chemotherapy. And then they give you your good stem cells back. And uh, I was in the hospital for 14 days. On the back end of that, I was home for about 60 days you know, recovering, staying away from germs, you know, watching Little League Baseball, just trying to trying to make it. <laughs> and um, and then in October of that year, they had me come back in again. I actually did that over again. So I've, I've had oh, wow. what they call a tandem stem, stem cell transplant. 
Um, so back to back stem cell transplants. And, and then I started preaching again in December. So by Christmas Eve, um, I came back to preaching and, and I wanted to say that we had an incredible church family. I mean, people loved us and they took care of us. They mowed our yard, they cleaned our house. They just, they blessed us in so many different ways. Yeah. And, and I had, you know, guys from within the church who, who taught for me while I was gone and, and other pastor friends from outside the church who would come in. And so people loved us and served us in, in just amazing ways. But, you know, as I came back in December and then can, and then started that, that maintenance regiment, um, you know, in January of that year, I began to realize I just can't do what I used to do. Mm. And, and so as a pastor, I mean, my, my, my motor hadn't changed, but, you know, my heart for, for God, my heart for his people, uh, my heart for the church hadn't changed a bit. Um, it's just that, that there were some dents in the car and you know, the motor was still run. It was still ready to, to, to go after it. Um, and so I just realized that, that, you know, the, 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 you know, the gas in the tank wasn't as full. And so I had to make some decisions just in my own personal schedule. Um, we had to make some decisions about the long-term, you know, existence of the church. And so does it make sense for us to continue, you know, uh, as a church plan? And that's, you know, I was sharing earlier before we started, we ended up partnering with another church. I just realized I couldn't do it on my own um, mm. and, and that I, I needed the help of other people. I, I wanted to be on a team again with other pastors. And so I think that's a humbling thing as a pastor, you begin to realize, and as a human being, like, I'm not God, I can't, I can't run a thousand miles an hour and I have real limitations and, and my capacity today is not what it used to be, you know, two and a half, three years ago. And, and just emotionally, you know, spiritually, I was processing a lot of things. I was processing my own mortality. I was thinking about my wife, uh, someday, um, you know, without me, I was thinking about my kids, uh, what it would be like for them potentially, uh, to walk down the aisle or to graduate high school, um, you know, without me. And so I'm trying to process all of those things. And yet every Sunday I'm being asked to get up and, and try to say something meaningful. And so those were by far my most difficult months in ministry, having to get up and preach and feeling like all I want to do is get underneath a chair and cry. Um, there were so many things that I was trying to process and was wrestling through and physically I was just tired. And so I went through a season that um, was really, really, um, you know, challenging, I guess you could call it burnout, you know, whatever language you yeah. want to use. Uh, I was running on empty on every level, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and I had to get some help. Yeah, I, I think, um, if anything, COVID has really magnified um, what burnout looks like in our community, because I feel like more, more than more now than ever before, people are experiencing the effects of prolonged stress, right? And so, and it's interesting that you're releasing a book about um, suffering in the midst of the storm when when we are in the midst of a global yeah, storm. Right. <laughs> um, that was good how, timing by our yeah, marketing well, department. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you see the parallels? I, I mean, one of the things that we say around here is that that prolonged stress turns our our cracks into canyons, right? Yeah, that, that's the good. cracks in our life into to bigger canyons. How are you seeing the parallels between what you went through then and, and kind of what the community is experiencing now? Yeah. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is that, you know, it, the book is really based off of Mark 4 and that, that story where Jesus is teaching the disciples by the lake and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And then he changes locations, right? He goes out into the middle of the lake and it's there in the middle of the lake that, you know, they meet the wind and the waves, the storm begins to surround them. 
And they discover not only who they are, but more importantly, they discover who Jesus is. Yeah. And, you know, I think for us, you know, one, one of the things we talk about often in the book is just that idea that, that chaos is oftentimes a far greater teacher than the classroom. Yep. And there's certainly things that we need to learn by the shore, by the lake. Uh, there's certainly things we need to learn in a classroom. But, but there's just some things that we cannot learn until we're in the midst of, of chaos. We're in the midst of a storm. And I think it's really in the midst of chaos or a storm that we really discover what we believe. Uh, there's lots of things we say we believe, you know, when we're on the shore and we're on dry ground. <laughs> right. But when you're in right. the middle of a storm, you find out really quickly what it is that you really believe. And so I think that is, a, you know, little did we know when we were writing the book or released the book that that the whole world would be in a boat in the middle of a lake. And and so I think that, you know, what storms do, what what chaos does, what a pandemic does is it reminds you that you really are limited in your control and your power and your resources. Mm. And you are not at the center of the world. And, you know, whether that's cancer, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, COVID, whether that's, you know, a miscarriage or a job loss or a son or daughter that has walked away from the faith. I mean, those trials, I think, just have a way of, of right-sizing us, of reorienting us. And um, they have a way of, of bringing to the surface what's really inside our soul, what our interior life is really like. And, and so I think that's why, why suffering, why storms, why chaos can be such great teachers be, because it really has a way uh, of showing us who we are and what's really inside of us and what we really believe about God. And, and it can be the, the perfect opportunity for us if we turn to God to really be um, you know, changed by Him and transformed by Him and to really move in a far deeper, more intimate relationship you know, with Him than we ever have been before. Yeah, that that's that's exactly what I tend to think too. Is that on the other side of chaos is a new um, the chaos is still there, but it's a new us. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, and so um, so take us through the the rest of the story with your cancer, and then how I, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that reordered your interior life. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I went through those two stem cell transplants in July, October of two thousand eighteen. And really since then, I, I have been, you know, by God's grace, I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm in what they call, you know, complete remission. Praise and God, so, yeah. yeah, so we just, you know, just last week I had another, you know, I have lab work every two months. And so just, you know, got that lab work back and it's all clean, which is always the best feeling. And so um, we really are just so grateful for the way God has met us in, in the middle of our storm, the way God has, you know, grown us and taught us and humbled us. And so currently my, my cancer is in remission. And so we just feel like, like you said, you know, it's not that that, that, um, concern is not still there, but we're just different people. You know, I have said before that I would not wish cancer on my worst enemy, but I also wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. And, and I do say that with humility. I don't want to sound stronger no. than, I, than I really am. Um, but what God has taught us through this, you know, I wouldn't trade for anything. And, and so there is just a, a new, a sweeter, a deeper, a more intimate relationship um, with Jesus, this side of cancer than I had two and a half, three years ago. And, and God has, has changed me, you know, from, from the inside out. Um, who Pat Schwenk is today is very different than two and a half years ago. And so I think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Yeah. And I, I just love that, that, that suffering and trials can be so good for us if we're taught by them, if we turn to Jesus in the midst of them. And, and God has, has reordered our life. He, he's restoring us and, and really reclaiming you know, uh, us back to himself. And you know, that's what God wants. I mean, God created us for life and truth and beauty and goodness. 
and and sin steals all of those things, right? I mean, sin right. uh, robs us of the good life, the abundant life that, that God wants for us. And so, you know, suffering has a way of just bringing us back, reordering our life um, to life itself. And so we belong to God and one day we'll return to him. Hmm. But God has been in the process of really reordering us and drawing us back to him so that we might experience the good life um, that, that he promised. And the good life is not always easy. It's not always comfortable, but the good life is really walking with God and serving Him and knowing Him. Uh, um, the the storm imagery is so powerful, I, and I know that you had your own storm with the cancer, and then and then Ruth had her storm, um, which is was connected, and then your kids probably all had their own storms as well. Yeah. And, and while it's all it's all connected, they're all still very individual experiences. Right. Um. I think that there are probably some people who are listening whose whose family members are going through storms and they may or may not be connected to to them but how, how do you how do you lead your kids through the storm and and lead your family through the storm in a way that um doesn't leave them drowning yeah well, that, that is not an easy, easy thing to do. And, you know, I mentioned my, you know, my friend who is a stage four throat cancer survivor uh, earlier. And, and one of the things he said to me, he was one of the first phone calls I made. And um, he said to me that day, he said, you only get one chance to tell your kids. And, you know, he wasn't trying to put pressure on me. Um, sure. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to discourage me in that. His point in saying that was that you're again? You're you're not walking through this by yourself. Your kids are going to be watching you and listening to you. And I think one of the things that that Ruth and I have done early on, like a lot of families, we, we were very diligent about about seeing our family as a little church, and that, that God has called me, um, you know, first and foremost to pastor my little flock, mm. to pastor my little church. And so when our kids were younger, um, you know, we were very very diligent. You know, not perfect by any means, but. You know, teaching them the scriptures, doing children's stories, and you know, memorizing scripture, and I think that's so important for um, for a parent to remember that that that's God's calling on their life. I mean, Deuteronomy six. I mean, we're called to pass on faith, and that God, you know, has chosen the family um, to help pass on faith to the next generation. And so we were, um, you know, very intentional about that early on. And so when my diagnosis came, you know, our kids were all, you know, I'm trying to remember their ages. They they were you know, in, I think 15, 15, maybe 12, you know, and on down. And, you know, one of the first things that, that we did, we waited two days and they knew something was wrong. I mean, they saw us crying. They, they wondered where mom was at. And, but one of the first things that we did then is we got them together and I sat them down and, and, and I told them, you know, what was, what was going on. I, I told them enough, uh, but not too much. And so we really tried to protect their, their security but we told them enough to know that, that, that you know something was wrong. But I told them three things. Um, I told them that God is good, no matter how this thing turns out, no matter what my future looks like, um, that God is good. Um, the second thing, as I said, God's going to use this in our life. And he's going to grow us. He's going to change us. But then the third thing that I told them is I want you to watch the church. Um, you know, Watch the way that God's people takes care of us. Watch, watch the way that they pray for us and love us and serve us. Because I wanted our kids to watch us again suffer well. And I wanted, I wanted this to be an opportunity for them to grow and to learn to trust God and depend on God. And, and so those were the three things that I told our kids uh, when we shared with them my cancer diagnosis. 
And I think over the last two and a half years, you know, we certainly have not been perfect. And if I could go back and, and do that um, again, I, I would do things differently. But I think we've been we've been intentional just about letting them see us. You know, uh, family discipleship has looked different. And so we haven't had as many opportunities as a family to sit down and do the kinds of things we did when they were younger, but they've watched us pray. They watched us, you know, celebrate, um, you know, God's goodness when we get, uh, you know, a, re- a report back or when I go see my specialist, they've seen our church family pray for us and invite us into, um, you know, worship gatherings where people have faith for us when we didn't have the faith for ourselves. And so, you know, those have just been some of the very practical, tangible ways that uh, we've tried to lead our kids and, and have allowed other people to lead our kids, you know, during my diagnosis. I love it. And, and it feels so relevant, right, to, to what's happening in the world right now. Hey, uh, I know a lot of things in your life is unstable, but God is good. God is going to use this and yep. watch the church. Yep. Absolutely. Watch the church. And and what a what a tremendous opportunity for the church to do something right now in the midst of of instability. Those are those seem to be very very wise words. Um, Pat, this has been such an incredible conversation. Is there anything that we left out that, uh, that we need to cover? I want to make sure that, that, I mean, you've said so much wisdom already, but is there anything else that out there that we, we didn't hit that we need to? Boy, I I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, the message of our book and, and the message we would want to point people towards is that while we might feel like we're, we're in a boat in the middle of the lake, we're not in a boat in the middle of a lake by ourselves. And I think yeah. that's what you see in Mark chapter four. And you know that, that Jesus is, is with them and he is for them. And before they went into that storm, he promised that he's going to get them to the other side. And so I think that that is the message of the book is that no matter what you're walking through, um, no matter what you're up against, like we, we serve a, a great God that, that Jesus really did live for us. He really did die for us. He, he really is... King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's conquered sin, Satan, and death. And he really is reigning and ruling. And there really is coming a day when he's going to return and restore and renew all yeah. things. That as followers of Jesus, we ought to be the most hopeful people. And, and I know that that as life storms come at us, sometimes that can be challenging. But I would just encourage anybody that whatever you're in the midst of, like your current reality is not your final reality. Um, that we serve a good God who's who's promised us a bright future. And so lean into that, be reminded of, of who God is and what he's promised us, uh, even in the midst of your storm. Come on, man. That'll preach every day of the week. Let's, let's do it. I mean, I that gets that me more than anybody. Yeah. It <laughs> gets me fired up. Uh, so I know my listeners are going to want to connect with you. What's the, what's the best place on the interwebs yeah. uh, to hook up with, uh, with you and, and Ruth? Yeah, there's a couple different ways. Uh, so our website um, that maybe is the, the easiest uh, place to go to, the, the betterlifeministry.com, um, or they can go to the bettermom.com, uh, forthefamily.org. And if they want to follow us on, on Facebook, we're both on Facebook and on Instagram uh, as well. I think I'm at Patrick W. Schwenk on, on Instagram. And so those are just some, some ways that if people want to follow us in that way, they, they can. We, yeah, we'd love that. And they need to... Uh, they need to pause this podcast right now and go subscribe to your podcast, Root Like Faith. Oh, thank you. I totally forgot um, to mention that it, as well. Oh, it's so good, dude. I, I was listening to uh, I, I listened to episode 17 this morning mm. where you talked about what to say when somebody receives a cancer diagnosis. Mm, yeah. And and you and your wife do such a great job on that, um, really bouncing off of each other. So kudos to you guys. As, thank you very much. As uh, the ministry that you're putting out there is is so, so good. Um 
So one of the questions I always love to end with is an advice question, right? If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, but I'd like to take you to a very specific time period because I I think it makes the conversation a little bit more fun. Um, Let's. Why why am I already getting nervous about this? This, this, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously it's necessary. Obviously it's a setup, right? That's right. (laughs) Um, uh, If you could go back to your wedding day, and and you don't know about um, the miscarriages, you don't know about the calling to, um, you know, what's going to happen with ministry, you don't know about the cancer yet. If you could go back on your wedding day and sit a young Pat down and give him one piece of advice, what would it be? Boy, that is that is quite a question. You know, I think that the thing that, that comes to my mind, um, and this is going to sound so simple, I love it. Um, but it is that you are loved. Um, mm. I I said something to somebody, re- I, I said to somebody recently that when you know you're loved, you can walk through anything. Mm. And if I could tell myself that in August of 1998, which is when Ruth and I got married, I would tell myself that, that, that you are loved, that you have a father who, who loves you. And he loved you so much that he gave his son Jesus to die for you. And there's nothing that can separate you from that love. And, and that love is the only love that's fully going to satisfy you. Um, it, it's going to satisfy you more than the relationship that you have with Ruth. Um, it's going to sustain you in the midst of cancer. It's going to sustain you in, um, you know, in the midst of miscarriages. Um, but that would be, that would be it, that, that you really are loved by God. You are a son um, and God is for you. And in your darkest days, um, he, he's going to be with you. And so I think about that as I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, and Jesus knew that he was a son, right? I mean, that, that's the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, the heavens open up, and, and the Father speaks over Jesus long before he's criticized, long before he's rejected, long before he goes to the cross. Um, he knows that he's a son. Um, and it's that very identity that, that of course, Satan will, will attack there out in the wilderness. Right. Um, but in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, he, he knows that he is a son. And even as much as he doesn't want to go to the cross, um, and as much as he asks uh, the Father to take that cup from him, he's still able to say, but not my will, your will be done. Because he knows that his Father is good, and he knows that his Father is for him. And he knows that his Father is going to raise him to new life. And so, not to preach a mini-sermon, but that's what I would say um, you know, to myself um, you know, 22 years ago. That's beautiful. And... Uh... And what a perfect place to end our time together today. Thank thank you so much for being uh, so generous with your time and your heart and your vulnerability. Uh, I'm praying that um, that this writing in, in a boat in the middle of the lake does so much to help people weather the storms of life that, that are coming, whether you're ready or not, they're coming. So right. yep. uh, thank you for, for sharing all that today. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It was great, great to talk with you and hope it's an encouragement to your listeners. What an incredible episode with Patrick. He is such a, a deep-rooted man of God. Um, I just love the way that he talks about his faith in the midst of such chaos. Uh, I It was inspirational to me. I know it was uh, for you as well. And uh, I just really, really appreciate his generosity and his vulnerability sharing his story. Hey, do me a favor. Uh, go connect with Patrick on social media. Uh, let him know that you heard him on here. Tell him thank you from me and from you. And uh, share this episode. Share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who's whose life's in the midst of chaos. They probably could really use it. I know that it is such a gift to me when leaders like Patrick come on and share their story. Also, don't forget, 
Uh, we're asking everybody to leave a rating and review. Trying to get to 100 by the end of the year. I know we can do it with your help. So thank you so much. And I look forward to connecting with you real soon.